Hello and welcome back to online education across the Atlantic. And we're just uh, just discussing how we're getting a lot of great personal messages through LinkedIn DMs, through emails, through talking to people at conferences. Um, so it's great to hear listeners uh, commenting on the show and giving us some feedback on what's happening. Um, even though that does set expectations, we got, we got to keep this going. So we appreciate the pressure you're putting on us, all of our listeners. So today uh, we're going to get in. We started talking about an early 2024 online education roundup of what's happening. So what we actually thought we'd say is, you know, as we get into this year, let's do a couple of episodes on that topic, sort of resetting ourselves. Where are we, and where do we see things going? And today, what we're going to talk about is more on the product side, which inevitably gets back to topics like micro-credentials and looking at some of the reports from some of the providers and what that tells us. So we're going to cover that now. Our next episode, we want to take a little bit of a deeper dive into enrollment trends and in particular addressing that question that we've raised about what's happening with online ed. Are are we past the pandemic and things are really taking off again? Or are we seeing a continued decline? And so what's happening in enrollments? And if, uh, to be quite honest, if the three of us like those conversations, we might add a third or fourth episode on the same talk. Well, so we'll see how things are going. Great to see you all. And uh, hopefully, uh, Neil, you and Morgan, you guys are surviving the winter and getting ready to start thinking about warmer weather again. Yeah, we are. Yeah, I think we've probably both been following the cricket in India. So maybe that helps in terms of observing a bit of sun. I know that's not your specialist subject, Phil, but we were talking a little bit about the cricket in India. But, you know, maybe that's our little oasis. So you get your sunshine through uh, watching videos of cricket. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And often, often, often they look very, very hot. So it makes you sort of happy to to, to go outside in a in a nice cool environment. <laughs> oh, <laughs> well, here in the Phoenix Scottsdale area, where typically you you get a you know we'd be in the seventies at this point, we're having this rainy cold spell. So we understand all the people complaining about the cold winters since we have temperatures <laughs> down in the fifties this week, and we're but we'll survive. I appreciate the concern that we have. But let's, uh, before we get to our main topic, let's sort of highlight some of the news of, of what's uh, what's going on. And we'll start with in the U.S., which continues to be what I think one of the biggest stories is the disaster of a rollout of the FAFSA form. And this week, I guess, to add to the saga of what we're seeing is now schools, we're seeing how schools are starting to react to not having financial aid information until like three to six months later than they expect to have it. Basically, schools are, are delaying their deadlines of where students need to commit. But there's a, I'm seeing increasingly stories saying the students that are going to be hurt by this most are going to be low-income students, you know, the people that we're trying to help out with a lot of this work. So to me, it's an ongoing disaster. We're starting to see the impact on schools. And part this ties into our series. I think this is another factor that longer term is impacting enrollments. I, I could see this materially impacting enrollments going on. So that, to me, is the biggest story. And Morgan, I don't know if you've been tracking this one within the past week. 
not tracking it closely, I saw that the Department of Education had released some sort of kit to help people adjust, but without actually addressing any of the core concerns. It's you know, it's probably a, a, a bottle of aspirin and a, a fifth of scotch. But yeah. um... <laughs> Well, that would be useful. I think yes. that there's a kit, but they're also offering staff to help okay. colleges. But I mean, the fundamental issue is students can't fill out the form, find out where their financial aid is, and send that data to school so they can process applications. So other than the scotch, I don't know how any of that really helps them. It's just... It's a PR effort. I've heard from uh, from law schools, you know, at the other end of the sort of spectrum, but they're just in a world of hurt about it. That the impact is just ginormous, and it's going to have, you know, it's it's going to, it's not even a something that can be solved next year. Presumably, when they have FAFSA that works, it's going to keep working through the system, you know, for however many years. Those students in the cohort are are working their way through. So, yeah, it's a toughie. Yeah. So we're definitely tracking that here. It's going to have, I think, a short-term impact on enrollment, as you're saying, in in different areas. But quite honestly, in this world of like questioning college and the value of college, I think it puts another dent in the public's perception. And Phil, has there, has there been much extrapolation to that level around FAFSA, FAFSA and, and, you know, this is another you know, blow to higher education and, you know, that we're offering such a bad experience for people that really need that kind of support. Like, has it kind of, has a narrative risen to this is another kind of death knell for universities kind of uh, narrative? Just on this podcast that I've seen. <laughs> okay, over <laughs> here. <laughs> well, I mean, that's that's our that's our MO, isn't it, probably? <laughs> it is. Well, I mean, yeah, I, we need to look at implications. No, I haven't seen that. Right now, there is across-the-board fury about what's going on. There's people saying, get your act together. You've had three years. There's political fury, and there's definitely a lot of coverage of the immediate topic, which is what's happening this year and this cohort of students. I haven't seen any real discussion, and I joke, I'm only partially joking outside of here that's saying this has got broader implications. I haven't seen it. No, I haven't either. So what about over in the UK? What like what are the main topics, discussions that you're hearing in the community right now from a news perspective? Yeah, I mean there's there's probably one big story and then one story that kind of caught my interest that's maybe not as big, but I guess one of the big stories was an expose or a supposed expose from one of the newspapers over here that was kind of labeled cash for courses and it was basically looking at international kind of foundation years and so the the expose was supposed to be that international students were able to get into university with lower grades essentially and this is I'm kind of, kind of simplifying it a little bit lower grades than students from the UK but they conflated two different access routes for international students so one was at international year one um, and international foundation year. So um, they kind of missed the mark, really. Um, but that kind of caused a bit of a storm in the UK. And there's sub- subsequently, there's been an investigation announced. But there's lots of uproar and controversy around the kind of quality of journalism and the fact that they conflated two different areas and therefore there's a de- degree in which the kind of reporting was slightly invalid. So that caused a big storm 
here and that's kind of playing out still a little bit and and probably aligns with kind of bigger narratives around international students then propping up the sector for some people they perceive that as being uh, something that might exclude UK-based students for accessing higher education, but there's a whole bunch of nuance that's often missing in that kind of debate. So that's that's been kicking around. So you're saying there's a lot of talk around that surface of the story, but then on the journalistic coverage of the story. Is that journalistic angle? Is that a outside of the Neil Mosley household? Is that a big topic? Or in other words, how big is that? The, the journalism got it wrong. Yeah, I mean, that's kind of a, that's front and center for universities' responses. And a lot of people's responses saying, guys, you're talking about foundation years as if they're international year one. You've completely missed, you know, the, the point here. This is not, you know, you, you've kind of not really understood this kind of route into university and you've made certain assumptions that this is about getting into year one or year two of a degree when it's actually a foundation year, which, you know, isn't a common uh, isn't an uncommon thing. So there's a lot of talk around the kind of quality of journalism and the fact that they just missed the mark on it. And also I think there's a there's an element of it in which I think people have been saying that it feels slightly motivated by this kind of middle-class outrage that my children didn't get into their preferred, you know, big brand university. But look, these international students are getting through on lower grades, because um, universities are treating them as a cash cow, and the journalism is kind of central to the um, to the issues with the story, because yeah, they they miss they misunderstood. Just wait until the British middle classes meet American athletes and legacy admits. Yeah, <laughs> they'll form a union. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah there's definitely a bit of a bit of middle class outrage that's kind of going on. Uh, behind it but and yeah I mean so that's that's kind of dominated a lot of the headlines over here I mean the other thing that kind of was interesting for me is as a study from the higher higher education policy institute on students use of generative AI and you know obviously that's been a huge cheaters yeah cheaters yeah yeah for a long time and you know I guess it just reinforced I suppose a lot of stuff that you know, many people had been saying and to a certain extent was known in that, you know, a lot of students are using generative AI, then they're not necessarily using it to cheat. And actually, they're quite reluctant to do so. And there was very um, small percentage of students that had said, you know, I just grabbed something from something like ChatGPT and just pasted it straight into my assignment. So, you know, it's just kind of, for those that are quite knee jerky about it, I think it, it just gave a pretty balanced view that you know there's not there's not vast numbers of students out there seeking to gain an unfair advantage through these tools but they are using them uh, in a way that perhaps they're not always encouraged to but i think that was interesting of the interesting aspect of it was the kind of um potential for it to ex- exacerbate digital divide so i think you know more wealthy students were using it more commonly which, you know, I think, again, there's certainly an element of the kind of Matthew effect of generative AI, the, you know, the rich get richer with these kind of tools and having access to them. So, you know, in, in one sense, I didn't feel like the findings were presented kind of a new revelatory kind of insight into things, but I think they just confirmed 
things in a helpful way that, um, you know, if you're of the disposition that you think you're desperately worried that every student out there is suddenly cheating on your their assignment, then I think, you know, that should allay, this should allay some of those fears. Well, I'll give you credit, you representing an entire region. Um, this is two weeks in a row that we've talked about uh, reports coming out of the UK that are very student experience centric, which kudos to you guys. So I, I would like you to accept the applaudits for that. that work. I, I will accept it on behalf of the United Kingdom. Thank you, Phil. Well, speaking of conflation, however, Morgan, you wrote a post yesterday uh, that's gotten already getting some interest, and I'm—I haven't told you yet. I'm actually thinking that we should do a follow-up on that. But it, tell us about your post on the extent of OPM usage and what motivated you to write it and what it said. I, I've been thinking of a follow-up to to uh, to say more. Um, yeah. So part of I, I, I was sort of prompted to write it by two things. One, we got a couple of questions from readers about how widespread is the use of OPMs by higher education institutions wanting to go online. So, are, is everybody doing it? Is are, are you know what what is the scale of that? And 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 also in some of the things I was reading, there was a sort of conflation of online learning with either for profit schools or with OPM led schools, as though that was you know a hundred percent of online was either for profit or a school working with an OPM. And my sense of that it was that was different. So Monday I spent much of the day and into the evening digging through the data. And you know the data is complex and in part incomplete because it's it leads and it lags. But essentially we found that you know around about uh, ten to fifteen percent of schools in North America use an OPM to offer a four credit program. So something that is tuition assistance eligible in in some way. So it's a, it's a, it's a minority. And, and of those, I also looked at what sort of funding model, what sort of business model they used. And about 80% were revenue share, about 13, 14% were uh, fee-for-service, and then about another 6% had multiple deals, one of which was revenue share and one of which was um, a fee for service. Something I also want to look at is, you know, I think private schools are more heavily represented in that group of schools that do use. So I want to sort of look at the kinds of schools and and, and some of those questions. But what were you thinking as a follow up? Well, the, you know, the question is, when you talk OPM usage in particular, are we talking at the institution level? Like what percentage of institutions have some sort of OPM arrangement versus program, which is really how the deals are signed for the most part. Yes. You know, the program, online program of blah, blah, blah. What percentage of those, which I just don't know of any realistic way to get the denominator of that data. We don't have Mm -hmm. a clear idea of how many online programs there are in the first place. So how would you compare it? And then the third way is, well, look at total enrollments. How many Mm -hmm. students are in programs powered by OPMs compared to other? And it's that third one that I've had one reader in particular, one subscriber in particular has asked about that, but I've had a couple of people reference it, that that would be another interesting measure. What percentage of students? Partially because of the situation of OPM programs are built for scale. So does that mean that, yeah, they might be a minority of programs, but they enroll so many students that it's got a much bigger impact than we expect? So that's one way to look at that. 
Yeah, that would be an interesting question because something I've been struck by over the last few months as sort of Pearson got sold and, you know, the unbundling of, of, of that sort of situation uh, was looking at how many of those programs were not actually productive in the sense of really doing well. So I think the yeah. goal is scale. The, the the execution was less less frequently. Um... Doesn't always come across. Yeah. The other thing is it's bimodal. So if you look at like the very small programs tend to not use OPMs and it's a lot of do it yourself. This department did an online program and they're not trying to get too big. So you have on this one side, the smaller programs, but then on the other side, you have North, you have Southern New Hampshire, Western governors, the really big providers. They also don't use OPM. So it's almost like OPMs are Mm -hmm. in the middle in terms of enrollment, but that's that's the uh, as we do some real time planning. That's the follow up post I'm thinking about. But but something I would encourage just to take this opportunity to, to to for people to give us questions like that, you know, so that it's it's interesting to, for us to hear what what people want to want us to look at. You know, we won't always do it because we can't or whatever. But send us then send us questions. It's also throwing red meat um, to us to get oh. us distracted. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Neil, do you have any numbers from the UK? Because I know that you do, you certainly do stuff looking at LMS usage, but you also look at OPM type of partnerships. But I don't think I've seen you do it as a percentage. Have you done that yet? Well, I mean, last week, I think you were testing me on whether I'd read your content. So I'm going to test you on whether you've read <laughs> my content. I, I haven't done anything really extensive on it, but I did some research um, last year around um, postgraduate programs and postgraduate student numbers. Yes. And I think I found that there were, I think there were a number of universities who'd grown student numbers by a thousand in the last, I don't know how many years, maybe five years. So not 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 huge, maybe in terms of US terms, but kind of slightly bigger um, quota over here. And I think there was around 60 to 70% of those universities had grown those numbers were partnered had some kind of partnership mainly an OPM so you know you, you know you can infer from that that you know those that are growing the most significantly are with OPMs and then um in terms of courses i think uh, you know the research wasn't wasn't perfect you know it's it's not always easy to get the exact numbers and it's always just a snapshot but i think the te- around 10% of all online postgraduate programs were run through OPM partnerships with a kind of greater proportion of kind of business and MBAs. I read that. I did not remember the percentage. So I have failed your pop quiz. I did no, not no, remember it's okay. those numbers. It, 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 was, it was not front and center. It was kind of in the midst of, of, of kind of broader research. But yeah, I, I did a little bit um, around that. It'd be interesting to update that and see how that's changed. Wait, wait, but going back to it, for postgraduate programs... 10% are using a partner. Yes. Yes, based on old research that I think is 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 a snapshot, you know, I wouldn't want to say it's an authoritative everything's covered, but I I'm pretty confident that that's a good good rule of thumb. It's not too far off with what Morgan reported for what it's worth. No. And maybe I'll 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 break it down, although again that's red meat for me. I'll disappear into the data and slowly comb through it manually <laughs> yeah I, I feel like we're sort of we're, we're kind of basically baiting listeners to 
give us questions that we want to find out. <laughs> yeah, well, uh, we'll see how that goes. But we do appreciate the interaction, but we we might have to learn how to say no. That that might be the lesson here. But given where we are, it's good to hear or to talk about the news of the day and sort of updates. But let's move into our main topic. And like I said, we're going to do a series looking at a roundup of where are we with online ed early in the year. But let me turn it over to Neil as we start looking at a sort of more of the product, the micro-credential side and where we are. Yeah, thanks, Phil. Yeah, that, I think one of the things that really got me thinking was looking through Coursera's 2023 results. And and obviously a, a business like Coursera has, you know, segments in a different way than if you saw a higher education sort of annual report from a university or something. You've got their consumer and their enterprise and their kind of degrees. And just kind of, you know, without kind of going into details of, of, of their report, the thing that I took away from that the most or that made me think the most was around their kind of certificates professional certificates and it and it felt to me that was a really becoming becoming a really central component of of their strategy the way in which it brings people in the way in which it kind of influences you know what degrees they they work on and the relationship between those things and so it kind of just made me think really about the professional certificates, the kind of micro-credentials space. And there's been other things that's kind of, that have come out. I think Upsea have have had a number of different reports, haven't they, around whether micro-credentials are a priority for universities. And then I think there was one recently that was really around kind of an employer focus. And I think there was a sense in which actually the employers were moving forward with private partnerships to address their need for things like certificates and micro-credentials and maybe universities were lagging behind or or declining in terms of that side of things. So I'm just really interested in those particular types of offerings from a strategic perspective for institutions, but also just in terms of observing what what we're seeing. So I, I, I guess I'm just interested in terms of what you guys are seeing around micro-credentials, professional certificates in and around universities. Does what some of the UPSEA reports have kind of highlighted chime with with what you're seeing or what you're what you're not seeing over in the US? Well, I'm seeing a lot of news stories recently and research reports, uh, which is interesting. I think a lot of people are asking this question. Mm-hmm. So there was UPSEA, of course, uh, Coursera's results. But I think I just saw within the past week, a study asking K-12 students, are they interested in getting certificates that might not be degree uh, granting certificates? And I think the theme there was there's demand, but it's, they're so unsure of what the value is. It's like there's, there's demand and interest, particularly because of the shorter program length. Hey, I can get value in a shorter time than two or four years of a thing but I don't know if it's valuable. So there was a new report that came out there. So I'm just seeing a consistent set of reports. The theme I see overall is there's a lot of interest, both from students, schools, uh, technology vendors, but the uptake is slow. It's just not launching yet. That's sort of the consistent 
theme that I'm seeing right now. And I will highlight uh, in the Coursera report, like they had what they called scaled pathways, which is essentially micro-credentials that can lead to a degree. And they talked to investors about that they're launching those and how important it is to their strategy. But at the same time, like they were talking about an and for degrees, we're focusing on proving out our pathway degree strategy, including sourcing and ramping new programs in the very early stages. While we work to drive scaled pathways for faster growth, they're looking for about 10% growth. But part of the message there is it's a core part of their strategy, but it's not growing as fast as they'd like yet. And that sort of captures the theme of what I'm hearing. Yeah, I'm, I'm sort of seeing a lot of interest as well, but lots of problems also and sort of underperforming that people aren't always willing to talk about, you know, so they're putting things out there and, and demand is not quite where they want it to be and profitability or, you know, at least being able to break even. And there was a bit of that in the Inside Higher Ed report on one of those, up, on those UPSIA reports as well, you know, in terms of they often have as much cost almost as a, as a, as a regular course and, and marketing and things like that. But sometimes the demand isn't there. And, and I think there's just a lot of confusion, one, about how to go about thinking about what the market wants. You know, I, I mentioned in one of my posts about a, a, an interesting interview I, I, I listened to in a podcast of, of somebody who'd run some of these at one institution where, where they started with the faculty. What are you good at? Let's build a micro-credential around that. And that proved to be the wrong approach. What actually worked better was to go to the to the uh, corporations and do that, but also just confusion around the technology to use to use them, the the policy changes, all of those sorts of things. Yeah, that's interesting. I I, I think it's just a really interesting area to me, and it's something I've kind of been looking into a little bit in terms of the UK over here. And I I think a lot of things that you've said, I would kind of echo in terms of perspective over here i mean one of the things that's interesting to me having having done a little bit of research on some universities in the uk is how in some instances kind of their kind of existing cpd standalone modules continuing professional development kind of offerings have essentially been put under a micro credentials banner but actually it's just a change in name. So when you look at a whole bunch of universities over here, they they have that other that other realm. It's not undergraduates. It's not postgraduates. It's kind of other stuff. It might be adult education, continued professional development, and in some instances, you know that provision has been rebadged as micro credentials. But you know, actually, nothing materially has changed. There might be instances in which modules have been kind of decoupled from particular programs but when you kind of investigate it, it it kind of has been has been rebadged and i think you know some of the things that you mentioned around perceived demand um that was certainly something that came up here when we had the a trial of short courses but also i i think what i'm also kind of interested in is is around the kind of the company angle because you know to go back to the Coursera report they're sort of strongly linked with industry partnerships and I just wonder how well equipped universities are to identify those kinds of opportunities and to identify the sorts of subject areas where there might there might be a demand and I just wondered if you had any examples of 
of universities or colleges that you you feel like you know are kind of getting that right well i do know that in california the community colleges they put a lot of money into local industry partnerships and defining different programs and pathways to meet local job demand needs and it's not just a little bit of funding here or there they they really do work this out so I've seen that happen. That certainly, though, doesn't fit within the uh, micro-credential, let's stack things together and end up with a degree. It's really, they're doing a good job of working with industry partners and understanding their needs. That's not the same thing as let's rethink how we provision it. But, you know, they're, I think they're isolated pockets. University of Washington. Yeah, yeah, at least my sense is that they they're doing a lot there. They have a lot of boards with 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 industry partners on at at the at the at the program level, so that it's really focused on on what it should be covering and and, and that sort of thing. But that's one that I know about. No, the the UPSEA report was interesting around that kind of engagement with employers because I think one of the stats that they had was kind of forty five percent of employers, you know. I think the narrative was that employers are interested and their employees are interested, but the one of the one of the headline stats was look forty five percent have never been approached by a higher education institution around it. There was a consistent message in that study, which I think is value. I think everybody should read who's interested in this subject, whether you call it micro credentials or not. And I know that there was a low response rate to save myself uh, some grief there, but. <laughs> It went a lot into, as you said, industry perceptions. They haven't been approached by a school or they're saying there's not a, it's even simple things like when I work with a school on this, there's not even a point person. They can't turn it around and and be responsive to our needs. And that to me sort of gets to, and I think this is where you're going, at least partially, Neil, is sort of like a university-led micro-credential approach versus a Coursera-led approach. And the UPSEA report seemed to be a thing saying, hey, we'd love to work with colleges and universities, but my gosh, they can't get out of their own way or they can't get the basics right, and that's a barrier. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's that's the interesting challenge challenge for me because – I guess I think about it as well in relation to some of the stuff we talked about before around the kind of financial challenges that universities face. And so, <clears throat> you know, industry certificates, micro-credentials is, I guess, one one route for them to go down in terms of developing uh, their portfolios and seeking to kind of improve their revenue uh, through a different type of offering. But what I see is really them doubling down on the kind of existing things in terms of degrees, really. So I think there's an interesting tension between the potential opportunity, but maybe the heightened sense of risk or viability of of kind of going down this this route, really. But I, I don't see many outside of kind of the bigger brand universities, if I can put it like that, kind of really looking to kind of grow these kinds of offerings. Um, and it, it sounds like you're seeing a similar thing. Yeah. The the big question for me is, are we, t- is this the e-portfolios of the 2020s, <laughs> which is tons of hype and stuff, but it just really never goes anywhere. 
other than a few isolated, interesting cases, but it didn't transform a single thing. Or is this something like this is it's a is this a megatrend? This is going to happen. We're going to break down the degree. There are going to be multiple pathways. It's going to be more tied to industry. But while people think it'll take three to five years, it's going to take 10 to 20. So is this megatrend or e-portfolio is one of the biggest questions I have. I remember back in the day, Darren Cambridge, who had, who had researched e-portfolios. He, I, I'm not sure if he did that, but in one conversation I had with him, he was threatening to to title his book about e-portfolios, Go Big or Go Home. And I think the answer was they went home. <laughs> like, <laughs> but, but it seems like they're coming back now a little bit, at least sort of I'm hearing more uh, about e-portfolios, like the way that Eduframe is is doing the Lord Dream is 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 doing it. But I think I think it's more long term than than e-portfolios. I think it's got more staying power. Maybe that's just because I wanted to have more staying power. But I think there's even another complication. And it goes back to one of the books I'm going to write one day or one of the big posts, long form posts I'm going to do one day is about computer science education. Because over the years, I've, I've spoken to thousands of students who, who are computer science students. And to a person, they are completely unhappy with the kind of instruction they get in higher education. And, and there seems to be this, 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 this problem with a lot of academic disciplines in teaching very practical skills. You know, and I think it sort of comes from that. And I think that's going to be one of the sticking points also for for micro credentials. All right, Neil, let's get you on the record. E-portfolio or megatrend? Um, I'm not going to go with e-portfolio. <laughs> so I, I guess I guess that means megatrend. <laughs> well, it might not be. Maybe the question is wrong. It might not be a binary. Well, I mean, I, I think I'm just thinking about it in terms of university activity. And I think it's kind of, I, I kind of think about it in a couple of different ways. There's, there's, the way in which micro-credentials stem from a disaggregation of degrees. And then there's there's the kind of what I describe as the other educational activity. And I kind of talked about before in terms of continuing ed. You know, you can put, I could, you could certainly put MOOCs into that area. And so I, I kind of think where, where are universities going to, uh, where's micro credentials going to stem from in terms of universities? Is it is it from universities becoming more serious about trying to reach students through that kind of other bracket of what they do, and joining that up a little bit more with the kind of undergraduate and uh, postgraduate degrees, or is it going to be around a disaggregation of, of of components? And I'm not sure what the answer is there, but it seems like in terms of what universities are prioritizing, it's still degrees of undergraduate and postgraduate variety. And there's not a big increase in strategic importance of the types of audience that you get through CPD, continuing education. Although one of the interesting things that I think has happened post-pandemic in that other kind of realm is there are more you know, those have gone online more, the kind of adult education, continuing education thing that might have involved you coming into the university on an evening. I think I think I've seen a lot of examples of that kind of then being run through synchronous teaching and learning through Zoom. So 
like that's the big question for me where is it going to come from and who's going to will it who's in the, in a climate where there's a little bit of uncertainty and sense of risk about it who's going to be willing to stick their neck out and kind of make a bet on that well this uh, for me so for me to go on the record i would say it's a mega trend not big fans of the e-portfolio hype of 15 years ago um not necessarily its usage in isolated cases but i think the definition of it is crucial. One of the things I do in keynotes and maybe people just put up with it or in workshops is I quote Virginia Sautier, who is a famous family therapist and she dealt with family dynamics, but some of her work has been applied to technology. And one of the things I've talked about is you get the disrupting element, which sort of breaks down the status quo. Then you tend to have these periods of chaos and then eventually there, there comes an aha moment or this idea is working and adds value and then things take off. And one of the key insights is those two things are different. The foreign element that breaks down the previous status quo is not necessarily and actually seldom is the new idea that actually gets adopted at scale. My view is that we're in that chaotic period in this whole topic of non-credit and micro-credentials, that the status quo is breaking down. We can't go back to degrees only. There's just too much demand and need. And that doesn't mean degrees are going away, but degrees is the main and only outcome. I think that status quo is breaking down. What we just don't know is what's going to be the transformative idea or set of ideas that will take it to the next level. And they might not even be called micro-credentials, but the whole idea of disaggregating degrees, breaking them down, providing different pathways that you could choose to go into degrees or you could get value on your own, and that those are much more tightly combined with industry needs, I think that's what I think is a, a megatrend. That concept is not going to go away. It's just the things breaking down the status quo are not necessarily the things that are going to work in the long term. Yeah, my my follow up question to that would be: Do they present a threat? So I just you know going back to the Coursera report, you know obviously their certificates with Google have done quite well. Google br- brings the prestige. And there's a kind of instrumental outcome potentially, it, 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 and, and then linking it with the Upsia report, which kind of you could interpret as saying, "Come on, universities, the private sector's moving on this, but you're not." Is this a threat? I mean, I, I'm I'm interested to know what you think, Morgan. I'm going to throw it to you because you were shaking your head. <laughs> I, knew, I knew that was a mistake the minute like my head was moving. It's like, oh no, no, they're going to pounce on me, and and partly it's because I I've taken a couple of the Google the Google certificates and and I, I would get enormously frustrated by some of the design choices there. I think it is a bit of a threat and, and, and it's one to take seriously because I think higher ed has some enormous pockets of, of awesomeness, but they also hide it behind a lot of uh, crazy bureaucracy and barriers and things like that. And I think speed and effectiveness and value are, are, are sort of high in demand right now at the same time as, as higher ed brand is, is taking a bit of beating in many situations. So I, I think it is a threat. 
I have a, this is not as clear cut as the regulatory environment that we've talked about a lot, but I was at a small summit um, this week and one of the panelists had a great quote and maybe he's used it before, but he basically said, let's admit it, higher ed has a suicidal impulse. (laughs) And what we need to do is we need to tell, we need to tell people death is not the only choice people. We can actually (laughs) choose to, to try something else. So I do view it as a threat, but in a best case scenario, it's the threat that helps push colleges and universities to be more aggressive towards what they do. So let me put it another way. To the extent that Coursera is more successful in these scaled pathways and starting to really prove out that's increasing their enrollment and that they can tie it to industry or somebody like Coursera, to the extent they're successful, that would be the thing that would be most uh, that would help higher education get even more serious about investing in the space. Not viewing it as a short-term cash cow, but investing and going big instead of going home. Yeah, one one thing with the Coursera certificates also is the kind of entry-level nature of it. And I think that's another component of it. Obviously, we talk about the fact that they're shorter offerings. Um, they're more industry focused, a bit more instrumental. But I think another interesting component of it is that you can, you you know, they're an on-ramp to something else in terms of academic study without you necessarily having the qualifications. And so, you know, that's another interesting area for, for universities. I think there's been some talk in the UK around certain universities lowering admission standards for international students um, and although that's not quite the same thing, you know, tying it back to the sort of financial um, troubles that universities face, there's also something around these these offerings presenting a pathway to those that might they might not ordinarily reach in terms of thinking about it as an opportunity. But I'm not sure that many people are thinking in those terms or that want to kind of face that kind of lowering of the bar maybe. Yeah. Lowering of the bar. That's an interesting phrase to describe it. Yeah. That's probably pretty, that's probably pretty loaded. And if it's described in that way, then they're certainly not going to want to consider it. I think about it for the episode title. So we can go a little bit clickbait. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I just think, I suppose the point that I'm making is I think there's an access component of this and on the on the financial commercial side of it which obviously you know just one component you know if you kind of break down barriers for people to come to your institution that might not ordinarily come to your institution then there's you know potential benefit there commercially as well so again i think it's not proven and so that i don't think there's many universities willing to stick their neck out to make that move but there's an interesting argument around access an opportunity to around this kind of thing, I think. Well, I think that, yeah, but the the hesitation that I'm seeing from schools is the access argument is very easy for most schools, you know, outside of some elites and stuff to buy into, but only if that means they can make some money or break even on it. Like Mm -hmm. schools are not good at investment and long-term payoff. 
So if there's ever a way where there could be financial security to make that increase in access, it's that combination that I think is not there yet in most fields. In some fields, like licensed fields, uh, teacher edge professional development, nursing, real stuff estate like that. sellers. Yeah, there are certain areas where it does make sense, but for a broad movement, it's going to be that combination of access and you're not it's not requiring a five to 10 year investment. Yeah, absolutely. So I, I think we've concluded that micro credentials are not the next e-portfolio. <laughs> and prove if anybody wants to prove us wrong, it, you'll have to come back in 2029 or 2030. And at that point, we will, uh, if we're wrong, we will admit it on the podcast at that point. <laughs> Well, that's good. So the next episode, as I said, we want to sort of say, where are we? And clearly part of what we're saying here is there's a lot of a lot of what's happening this year is trying to figure out questions like this. What is the product, the offering, whether it's by colleges, universities or the technology providers and who follows whom? Next week, we're going to do a deeper dive into the online enrollment and what is the student demand behind that and, you know, post-pandemic. So I know that we've touched on that subject, but we want to just take a deeper dive and see where we are next week in the series. But it's great seeing you guys, and thank you for joining us. And I guess the other thing for today is send us your feedback, listeners, if there are additional questions you have. And subscribe to the podcast. And if it were YouTube, I would point to the bell. Hit the bell and subscribe to the <laughs> podcast. But yes, you were right. Subscribe to the podcast.